Welcome to Speaking of Partnership, the show that brings you the personal partnership stories of experts from all walks of life so you can turn their stumbling blocks into stepping stones to healthy, long-lasting partnerships. I'm your host, Ken Bechtel. You know that the partnership game is not easy, but it's so worth it. If you're struggling with attracting or maintaining partnerships, go to speakingofpartnership.com right now, click on the big red button, and attend a free webinar on the secret to starting your ideal partnership today. Now, let me introduce you to today's guest. I'm super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Tara Costano. I said that wrong, didn't I? Cousineau. I tried. I wanted to get it right, but I knew I'd screw it up. Why did I put a T in there? We fixed it, though. Okay, this is what it's all about. Tara, welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) It's not easy, so thanks for taking up the challenge. You're very welcome. And, you know, it's kind of funny here because I was just a good example, right? Because your, your work, you're the author of that new book, The Kindness Cure, and I wasn't really kind to myself there, but... We got through it. So it's called The Kindness Cure, How the Science of Compassion Can Heal Your Heart and Your World. Now, Tara is a psychologist. She's a coach in the Boston area. She's a yogi and a meditation teacher. Do us a favor, Tara. Would you take a minute and just kind of give us a, a little glimpse into how you got started focusing on kindness? Um, yes. Well, you know, sometimes it's certain challenges in life that really kind of get you thinking. And that's definitely what happened with the kindness cure. Essentially, um, when my, um, what happened was an upsetting incident where my daughter, she was 18 or almost 18, the night before senior year high school started, all the kids are hanging out at, you know, whatever, the woods where all the kids are congregating, they're celebrating being seniors, Yahoo. And she's leaving the woods where she knows she's not supposed to be. Um, And um, she gets beat up by another girl. A girl who I knew, actually, from growing up, right? And um, my daughter waited a day to tell me about it because she knew that word would get around and come back to me. And... um, And I actually had been working late that night, so I wouldn't have seen her anyway. And um, it was one of those moments where, you know, a lot of shit happens in the world, right? Bad things happen. But when it's really close to home and it seems so incongruous, and I just asked myself this question like, really? Like, why? What happened to kindness? And so it was really more of a lament, I would have to say. And then I just kind of put on my psychologist research cap and said, okay, we all know that kindness is, you know, a core value for many of us, but is there anything that we know about, that we don't know about kindness, essentially? Is there anything new? So that's when I kind of went and started asking questions and digging in and and seeing, you know, oh, is there anything new in the science? Is there anything new in the neuroscience? And sure enough, there was. Excellent. Awesome. What an interesting question, right? Is there anything new about kindness? Yes. Like whoever thinks about there might be new kindness. There, there's new information, <laughs> new and improved kindness, you know, <laughs> that's fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> so as you know, and everybody listening knows, we're focused on partnership here. And obviously kindness and compassion and, and, and being able to heal those pains that we've experienced is a huge piece in having a healthy partnership. And I'm wondering... What do you find is is 
Like work is a, I call it a guiding principle. Some people it's their touchstone or their mantra, but what's that thing you can always come back to that helps you get on track with partnership when you've kind of gotten off in the weeds? Um, yes. Well, you know, in the process of writing the book, I actually did have a mantra that I came to and the, it's actually more of a question. So I ask myself multiple times a day, how can I bring kindfulness to this moment? Hmm. Yeah, what does this mean? Well, it means being aware of the present moment with heart. And it's really a practice or skill that's about being able to hold both sort of wisdom and equanimity or calmness on the one hand and compassion or kindness on the other hand. I have to say, it comes up all the time. I'm a parent, I got teenagers at home, I have clients, you know, there's, you know, people who are angry out in the world. So I find myself saying, okay, take a deep breath how can I bring kindfulness to this moment? So it inserts an important pause, I think, in challenging moments. Yeah, that's what an interesting question. And I, what's the distinction when you say kindfulness? Is that something distinct? Well, for me, um, I think I've made it sort of distinct. I've sort of tried to cultivate a language around kindness. And mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I do practice mindfulness. I've been a mindfulness practitioner for a long time. And um, my sense is that, you know, the trends in the world of mindfulness has really sort of commoditized it in a way. Like mindfulness is about focus and performance. And um, it's being in the moment, but it doesn't really necessarily have the heart or the compassion, which is actually the original foundation of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Like there's two wings, really, right? It's it's this sort of wisdom on the one hand and, and compassion on the other. And so I like the word kindfulness because when you say kindfulness, it automatically brings to mind, oh, yeah, wait a minute. How can I be generous or open hearted, not just present? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it brings a different quality. So that's why that's my distinction, essentially. I really like that because as you were sharing there, and you said about, you know, mindfulness has kind of become a commodity. It's so interesting because I instantly was like, yeah, because the thought around a lot of mindfulness practice is what do I get out of it? Right. As opposed to just being present. Exactly. And it becomes it becomes a goal. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah. being kind, by definition, does not have an agenda. Correct. It's not about, oh, well, I'm going to do this, so you'll do that. That's not really kind. That's manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And we're all kind of good at doing all of that. Right. Yeah. So um, and that's just, you know, being human and we want what we want. And, you know, we strive for the things that we desire in life. And that's all well and good. And sometimes we get caught up in that striving mm. as opposed to standing back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Tara, one of the things that our listeners love about the show is how generous our guests are and sharing their own personal stories of partnership. And I'd love to ask you to share with us a time in your life when maybe you kind of tripped up in a partnership. And, you know, tell us what happened. What were you doing? What did you trip on? And ultimately, what did you learn from that experience that has helped you move forward? Yeah, I've been listening to your podcasts, and I know this is one of your vintage questions, so so it's been fun to kind of think about it, mm -hmm. <laughs> actually. And, um, you know, I actually have another word that I write about in my book. It's called kindsight. And um, I've lived a little bit by now. And so kindsight is viewing past experiences with tenderness and understanding. So it's kind of looking at those past 
mistakes, let's say, or failures or disappointments with a sense of really being generous towards yourself. And so the story that actually popped into my mind about partnership was um, literally about a partnership. When I was in my mid, uh, early 20s, I would say after college, um, I moved to Boston from Germany where I had done a year long, uh, my senior year was there, I'd done a year long program you know, sort of traveling around the country with a school group and then working for half the year. So I was in Munich all by myself. I, you know, it, it was very lonely. And so I took up ballroom dancing classes after seeing this wonderful a theater production called Tango Argentino, you know, and I was like, I want to learn the tango. Mm -hmm. And um, and so when I came back to Boston, I didn't know anybody either. And um, I had picked Boston as a city to live in because it felt very European to me. Actually, that was sort of the connection. My mother's German and I just kind of wanted wanted sort of a cozier city feel. And so I took up dancing once again with um, with Arthur Murray Dance Studios. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know what I was getting myself into, to be honest with you. But but to make a sort of a long story short, this whole idea of, of dancing and partnership was really um, was fun and it was exciting. And I started to get good at it. And then I became um, an amateur like in the and my coach became the professional. So we were in these pro-am competitions together. And this took up a lot of my time and it was sort of my social life and it was all well and good. Well, you know, I got really, you know, you get it's sort of like a click. This is way before like Dancing with the Stars, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of like out in Nerdville a little bit. <laughs> but um, back then, you know, it wasn't really cool and sexy. But um, so anyways, um, I ended up in a relationship with um, my dance coach who was significantly older than me, like 18 years. It was a big stretch. And um, he actually at one point proposed to me, proposed marriage to me. And we had, you know, gone on a lot of competitions together and, you know, we, we were dating, but I didn't really expect it. But I was so, I don't know, naive, I think, or flippant. I don't know. I was 23, right? So I just said, oh, yeah, like maybe in five years. Well, he took that really seriously. And the next night that we went out, he actually proposed to me at this Cafe Victoria on, in the North End in Boston, got down on the hands and knees, and there, everyone around us started clapping. And I was like, oh, my God. I wasn't really serious, and I, I didn't want to, like, break it to him, right? And so um, it, it was just such a public display, and it was so unexpected. So anyways, it really with a downward spiral from there on. I just didn't have the guts to say, you know, hey, I, I, I misspoke. I am so sorry. I love you. I, I'm, I'm too young. I don't want to think about getting married. It's not a time for me. Like that would have been probably the generous and right thing to do. But I didn't. I was just kind of scheming on how do I get out of this? And, um, and unfortunately, I just didn't trust my instinct to say no, say no, you know, just do the hard breakup. That's the kinder thing to do, actually, in the moment. And I didn't. It dragged on for a long time. And then, um, and anyways, I look back at that as a story that I share with my teenage daughters now, because girls have a hard time, you know, saying no um, and sort of establishing a boundary. They don't want to hurt other people's feelings. Um, and so that was a big sort of that was a big trip up for me, and it ended up being um, a lifelong lesson. Actually, it was the wrong tango to be in. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> 
So since people are probably wondering, I'm assuming you did not end up marrying this gentleman. No, I did okay. not. But breakup was like three months. It was a summer long and he lost like 40 pounds. I mean, he was so distraught over it. I mean, you know, if you think about it now, because um, I'm older now than he was then, but, you know, he's, you know, in his like 40 or something and he's wanting to settle down and he had been married once and that didn't go well. And, you know, and I really just didn't want to wound him. And he had a terrible childhood experience. Right. And I really did not. I, I just didn't want to be another rejection. <laughs> and that was just, that was really the, the misinformation in my own mind. I think I really should have done it much sooner. And then I finally did. And it was actually with the help of, um, a co-worker, sort of a, a mentor, co-worker, a guy that kind of just supported me all along. And funny enough, about six years later, I married that man who helped me out of that relationship. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and actually, and I, what I learned about that also was that um, what I had with the dance coach was sort of, you know, it was exciting and it was um, thrilling in a way. And it was, it was very romantic. You know, you can imagine, you know, sort of, you know, dancing and dressing up and all this sort of thing. I felt like I was just thrown back to another era. I probably should have been born in another era. Um, and then um, with my husband, Steve, it was really about friendship. It was about friendship and trust and, and a confidant. And it wasn't rushed and it wasn't crazy and it wasn't over the top it was really quite different so you know but sometimes we have to learn this stuff in our 20s or 30s or 40s, 40s or 50s <laughs> whenever yeah. we learn it is a good time to learn it exactly yeah so I, I love that story and here's why because what I was hearing you say is you're sitting there going you know I didn't want to break his heart I know he had a tough, difficult time and you were trying to be nice but that actually didn't serve anyone. Correct. <laughs> you would have been better off being kind. Yes, I would have been better off being nice, but firm and clear. And, you know, I often say I have a lot of women in my practice, um, you know, where this kind of situation can come up um, a lot. and. I say that setting a really clear boundary is the kindest thing that you can do for yourself and another person, even if it feels scary. Absolutely. 100%. And you know, it's funny because uh, I had this example given to me once and it was such a great example. And they were saying the way you can like a good example of the difference between nice and kind is if you think of, um, what was it American Idol or whatever with Simon Cowell and Paul Abdul. Oh, and, yeah. Paul Abdul was always nice. Oh, I love your outfit. You have such great style and energy. But no matter how bad they were, she was nice. Yeah. Simon was kind. Now, sometimes he pushed that, but he told them the truth they needed to know. And everybody in the audience knew it, and they were all so uncomfortable they hated Simon. Because he yeah. was like, look, dude, God bless you for coming out here, and that's a brave thing, but you don't have a career in music. <laughs> And people are like, that's so mean. It's like, no, he was being kind. To tell him to keep doing that when he, as a professional, knows he does not, that is not kind. He was being yeah. honest. It was difficult, but he took that role of, look, if I don't do this, I'm not, I'm not doing my job. 
Right. And I, yes, and I agree. I agree with you that it's, it's better be straight shooter and honest, but do it from a sense of generosity, right? Versus rejection. And I think that that's sometimes very hard for people to do. And it's very hard for people to receive because, you know, when you're on the receiving end of a rejection, immediately your mind goes into this head spin like I did something wrong there's something terribly flawed with me I I'm not good enough rich enough smart enough musical enough whatever it is and and that's really a hard place to be so you know it's it's and being nice and being nice to that is not necessarily helpful to to a person in that state of mind but it is helpful for someone to really come from a a place of of generosity and and friendship and friendliness, right? Yes. Um, and that's hard to cultivate sometimes in our culture. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the kind piece is that it's coming from your heart. This isn't a blame. It isn't anything. It's just like you know, this isn't a match. Right. It's. I, I use the analogy of it's like going to buy shoes. Right. You go buy a pair of shoes. You're like, oh, my gosh, those are the cutest shoes. I have to have them. And they go and get your size and you put them on and there's no way you can wear these shoes. They do not fit. And you're like, are you sure this is my size? And they're like, yep, that's the size. And they're like, do you have any other size? No, that's the only pair we have. And you have a decision. Do I try and force myself into these shoes, even though I know they hurt just putting them on and I'll never be able to wear them? Or do I go, oh, I wish they did fit? They don't. Not a match. Right. The shoe's not wrong. I'm not wrong. Let's go shopping. That's right. The Usually, like right. And Ken, when you put your your toe in that shoe, you pretty much know yes. up front, <laughs> right? Exactly. And you know much earlier than you know, but you you suffer through a lot of things, and it's really when that toe doesn't fit right away. It's like, eh. and then I think we second guess ourselves. Oh well, maybe it will work out, or maybe I'll just give it another another couple dates, or well, maybe he'll come to his senses eventually. And that is just not the way to go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that's actually a great segue to to one of my other favorite questions, which is. I'm I'm curious what would be a time that you would share with us of a I call it a dumb moment. It's one of those times where you're just like, wow, I can't believe I've been doing this for so long. I'm such a knucklehead, right? Like you catch yourself. And share with us what happened and then, you know, what did you learn from that wake up moment that became a building block for your future partnerships? Well, you know, I think that actually I would have to go back to um uh really in the aftermath of that whole ballroom dancing phase. And, um, and I became friends with, or friendly, I should say, with my coworker who was senior to me. And, um, and I had this sort of hard and set rule, believe it or not, like, I don't know why I didn't apply this to ballroom dancing, but in the workplace, it was like, you know, you don't, you don't date people you work with, right? I mean, that was sort of like, kind of like a rule that I had. And so I, um, I really kind of, you know, was very sort of cautious with um, my, my husband's name is Steve and kind of like just kind of standing back a little bit. And yet he was very smart, very funny, very wise. And um, and I just was I had in my voice or my, in my mind another voice, which is actually from my mom. My parents had a terrible marriage. 
they divorced when I was eight years old. My mom was like, never count on a man, never rely on a man. You only can rely on yourself, right? I mean, that was basically the message that I absorbed. And, and then my father, who was a deadbeat dad, never paid child support, left us bankrupt, the whole thing, you know, the, the message I absorbed from him was, you're really not worthy of investment. I don't really have the time for you, right? So I had these really weird competing beliefs when it came to relationships, and that was really hard. So I think the duh moment for me um, was um, eventually as I was working through getting out of, you know, hot water with the whole ballroom dancing, which actually meant I also kind of left the um, the hobby <laughs> mm-hmm. in some ways was um, really one day when um, Steve asked me out on like a real date <laughs> was to actually not go through all of my inner critic um, and judgmental side and critical side to say, yeah, okay. And you know what it was? Because I feel like it only happens like, I don't know, a few times in life where you just get like this divine download in a way that there's this little tiny inner voice that says, trust this human being, trust this person. This is a good person. This is a loyal person. This is a friend. And I really had that. I don't know where it came from. And I just decided to trust it. And next year we'll be married 25 years. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. We're in the 50% bucket of making it work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you make such an interesting point because if we go back to our comment about, you know, like you said, putting your toe in the shoe, you know, right away. Yeah. It goes the other way too, where you're like, okay, I have these rules or guidelines or whatever I've come up with, but there's something that says, trust this. I can't explain it. It doesn't fit my rules that I've gone by, but there's something here. I'm going to explore. Right. Exactly. And to also know to trust to trust that wise voice, because there might come a point where something that you trusted in the beginning seemed like it was going to be right, like the right thing. But then being open to like other signs or conditions that come along the way where you say, wait a minute. Oh, I, I might need to double back. And, you know, this is now confusing. Right. And. I feel like this is actually almost one of the number one things that that I deal with um, when I work with women is that then you get sort of experiences in life and you don't trust your gut because there's a lot of fake news down there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And um, and that's really actually where I find the mindfulness practices come in, the self-compassion practices come in is that we actually have to get ourselves back into the kind of like a real still quiet place so that we can engage with that wise voice. And that I think takes practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's plenty of chatter going on in our heads. Yeah. And it's like, well, how do we get quiet enough to actually notice what's real? a lot of the chatters are fears it's other people's influence it's all these things and it's like because like you said you know you you may go down a path and you're like uh i need to kind of reevaluate but then we start to go but does that mean i don't know what i'm doing well how do i trust this decision either now i can't trust anything now i feel trapped exactly i call those head spins and we spend a lot of time in head spins so what's because i know this is a huge thing for lots of people on the listening to this right now 
what's one of those tips you give your your clients that like helps them to start well basically their head to stop spinning yeah, it's interesting. I just feel like I had a conversation the other day on Monday, actually, with somebody about this. Um, and and what she, you know, her experience was that the moment she wakes up in the morning, she is flooded with questions and self-doubt. It's almost like her day starts with this rampage of negativity. And she doesn't really know how to get out of it. And it could really sort of paint the rest of her day. And, and I said, I know exactly what you, what you're feeling. I experienced this too. And the best thing to do in that moment is to get out of bed because you actually have to start getting your body physically active so that you're not, you're not going into the addictive drone of the brain. <laughs> you really need to get up and move. And whatever it is, you brush your teeth, you step outside with a cup of coffee. It's really important to, to be able to um, separate yourself from that inner drone. Um, and, and she was like, yeah, you're right. And she used to have a practice. And she, was a, she got away from her practice. She used to get up and sort of like, you know, ride the fitness bike in the morning and do 10 minutes of meditation. And, and that had just sort of gone to the wayside. And I said, you know, sometimes we have to change things up because things get boring. So how can you change up your morning routine so that you don't get lost in your own mind? Um, the second thing that I teach people is that we have to actually think of our brains as, you know, it's, our brains are just spewing content. Our, our hearts beat, our lungs breathe, and our brains spew content. <laughs> that is what they are designed to do. And a good thing too, right? Because that's how we get our ideas and our creativity and all that sort of thing. But the majority of that content is just made up crap. <laughs> it really is. And and if we can just realize, oh yeah, that's just what the mind does, right? And step outside of that, just say, oh, my mind's spewing again. You know, I just got myself in a swamp. Um, and that it, it just to realize that that is what the mind does. So we're not fighting against the rhythm of our minds, but we're understanding our minds so that we can step outside of it and say, oh, yeah, I just got to let this one go by. And that takes sort of a little bit of co self-coaching and practice to do that. You know, I, I, that is such a powerful point because you're right. I mean, our brains make up all this stuff. Right? It's yeah. like constantly generating all these ideas and stories and meanings to things that aren't real. And we lose sight of what's actual facts versus all the fiction our brain is generating. And then we're wondering well, why doesn't this hold up? Because it wasn't true in the first place. Right. It was fears. It was, you know, somebody's idea of what you have to do to be safe, whatever it is. Right. And, you know, when we can step away and go, just because it's in my head doesn't mean it's right. Well, you're so right. You know, we can use our imaginations for the good and we can use our imaginations for the worse, really. Um, we, it's so powerful. And, you know, um, I'm a facilitator in the Brene Brown's method called mm -hmm. the Daring Way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, you know, Brene Brown says and, and um, I think her Rising Strong book is, is you know, what is the story that I'm telling myself and what's the evidence for it? And I find that question also really helpful. And then you realize, oh yeah, this is actually a really a story. And you might know where, where some of the components come from, but it really is a story. And when you start looking for the evidence, um, then you realize, 
oh gosh, I'm doing this to myself again. Stop it. Stop it. You know, and then you get yourself out of it or you go seek, you know, validation from, from a trusted friend, um, that sort of thing. But we do tell ourselves a lot of stories. And if we could put those stories into a script for a movie, we'd probably be pretty famous. <laughs> right? I mean, we're very creative yeah. thinkers. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so this just occurred to me, Tara. What I'm hearing you say, and you're the expert on this. This is why I wanted to bring it up. What you're basically saying is you need to be kind to yourself. Absolutely. I feel like it really comes down to that. Um, my definition for kindness is love in action. And that applies to the outside world and the inner world. And I think, you know, one of the aspects that I that I learned when I, a- I asked myself that question, what is there new to know, know about kindness? Mm-hmm. Well, on the neuroscience side, it's so interesting. And now I've been a psychologist for over 20 years. Um, and, you know, with the onset of fMRIs, you know, people are doing these brain scans and they're finding, you know, all of these really interesting neural pathways and networks in the brain and when we're triggered by something as you as you know when you talk about you know we're kind of we our amygdala you know the alarm Mm -hmm. bell the limbic brain kind of explodes and and the wires are tripped and we just go into the state of panic or fear or anger or blame whatever it is and it's very very hard to get ourselves out of that without knowing some skills like self-calming techniques, breathing regulation, those sorts of things. And when we practice those breathing skills, what happens is, is there's a pathway that crosses over to the prefrontal cortex and um, that starts to activate and shut down the amygdala. So by practicing these calming skills, um, Hopefully, when you're not in a crisis or a panic, because it's help, it helps to build resilience, is to practice daily meditation, breathing skills, so that you can actually have a very sort of resilient and strong network that crosses the bridge from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, where we can zoom out and take perspective, where we can read social cues well, where we can plan all these sorts of things. And just knowing that that there's this pathway and we can activate it, like we can just go and work it work it out. You know, we can work that compassion muscle. The second interesting thing I think in the neuroscience is that the pathways for empathy and compassion are different in the brain. So for instance, when we are, um, aroused, like just say, Oh, the children behind the wire fences, the whole, you know, children separation immigration issue, right? I mean, you look at those pictures and you just want to weep. And, you know, and that actually for many people, including myself causes this sort of empathic distress. Well, that's basically igniting the amygdala. We feel so much for the suffering of these children and these families that we actually, um, our brains just kind of go into the fight or flight response and we can, you know, we can get angry or we can shut down and turn off the news and numb out like I can't take anymore, right? That's empathic distress. Well, compassion actually resides in the in in the prefrontal cortex area where we get enough distance of, um, of perspective where we're not kind of hijacked by the emotional empathic distress, but we actually go into empathic concern. And I know I'm talking a little bit long here, but I want your listeners to know this. And the practices that help um, with that compassion muscles 
are doing a loving kindness meditation. For instance, a loving kindness meditation is is sort of wishing well for yourself, loved ones, strangers, um, difficult people and, and the world. And it's sort of like a, a prayer that goes from the inside out. And you practice that for five minutes a day over time. It actually strengthens those pathways. They've got sort of the neural maps to show it. And I find that so powerful, that a simple thing like a loving kindness meditation can actually change your neural pathways. Yeah, and and you're right. I mean, it's fascinating what they've been able to find from functional MRIs. And, you know, one of the things that, that is really interesting is, one, I I do a kindness meditation every morning. So <laughs> it's funny that you say that. Um, but the other thing that, that I want to make sure it's clear for people, because we, you know, we talk about the different parts of the brain. A lot of people have heard of the amygdala as the worry center. Right. That's what it's often referred to. This is what you're talking about is calming down that worrying part of our brain. It's just worrying about everything, stuff that's got nothing to do with us, stuff that's not related to us, stuff that, that we could do anything about if we wanted to. I used to work with a woman. She would get so consumed when there would be some major you know, thing happening in our world, was a school shooting or whatever. She like was 24 seven staring at the computer. For the next week and a half, she would not sleep. She was just so consumed by it. It was like, I, I didn't know what to offer at that point in my life. I was like, oh my gosh, you got to find something to separate from this because there's always going to be something that's going to trigger that, wherever that's coming from for you. But we do it in so many different ways where we're constantly in that state of worry. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that amygdala is just doing what its job, yeah. right? And so we actually have to not overexpose ourselves. And that's sometimes a hard thing for people to do is because we are so overexposed. Yes. And you know, one of my theses is in the book is that, you know, kindness takes effort. And so part of that that effort is not watching the news as much and is actually purposely going out and creating positivity, purposely going out and taking in the good, purposely going looking for those happy news stories and sharing those. That takes effort. And, you know, but our, we're just so pulled by that negativity bias, which is sort of another sort of, you know, unconscious function of our of our brain mind system is that, you know, we are, you know, pushed to look for the threats, you know, so that we remember what they are and they don't happen to us. But we have to actually put in the effort. We have to lay down these neural networks, these new practices of taking in positivity. They really build resilience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, it's not like, oh, you have to do this for hours. Five, ten minutes a day. Start building that. It's like going to the gym, right? You don't just work out one day a month for ten hours. You, you go every day for a little bit. And eventually that builds that up. So absolutely, it's, yeah. it's what they, they call, you know, the informal practices, you know, mm -hmm. rather than just trying to sit for 45 minutes or 20 minutes, God forbid, it's, it's, it's even as simple as, you know, three minutes, you know, three to five times a day, whenever you find yourself, you know, walking or in your car in traffic, and you're not moving. I mean, those are perfect times to just really kind of tune in um, and say, a loving kindness meditation, or have a kindness mantra or something that is soothing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Tara, we've gotten to a part of the show I call Bring It All Home, and this is where we, we step away from the stories for a little bit, and we give our listeners some, some little nuggets they can take home with them. And, and where I'd like to start is, what would you say is the best partnership or relationship advice that you've ever received? <laughs> Gosh, um, 
I really think that it's um, it's the one that that makes you mad too. It's um, don't take things personally. <laughs> don't yep. take things personally. You know, and I and it's a hard one to practice because you know when you feel disappointed or rejected, of course you're going to take it personally. But um, it, there is this practice of not identifying with um, the stress of the situation or the other person's stuff. So for me, it's don't take things personally. And I practice this with my husband and even with my kids because God knows moms are blamed for everything. And I've just really learned not to take it personally. Really, it, it's very helpful, actually. And I say to myself, don't take this personally. Something else is going on in their mind. They're stressed out. They had a bad night's sleep, whatever, you know, got a bad grade. Um, don't take it personally. And um, that doesn't mean that people can't, shouldn't be accountable for misbehaviors, let's say. Um, but I think we tend to take so many things personally. Absolutely. It's such a great, I mean, it, people are like, oh, it's such a cliche. It's like, well, cliches are cliches for a reason. Because they're true and pervasive. That's why they're a cliche. It's not because they're not true. It's because they're very true. They show up everywhere. Exactly. Like, you know, don't sweat the small stuff is another cliche. Mm -hmm. But I love that because it's true. <laughs> you exactly. Know? We just get sort of wrapped up in this, you know, and again, a lot of it is our neurophysiology. You know, we immediately go to what we see as a threat. So so typically in relationships and partnerships, we see things as a threat. And that's when we kind of go into, you know, the fight or flight response or shame or blame. And and there are probably lots of moments in a day where you could say, how do I bring kindfulness to this moment? Or don't take this personally and just see what happens. Mm -hmm when you adopt that attitude. Absolutely. Fantastic. So we talked a little bit about your book, which we're definitely going to have a link to on the, on the show page. I want to know what other book, or maybe it's just a resource, maybe it's not even a book, but what would you recommend to our listeners regarding partnership and why? Um, I know you always ask this question, and, um, and if you saw my office, it's full of books, like hundreds. I don't even know what to do with them all. But I have to say, when it comes to relationships, and I mean any relationships, you know, parenting, partners, friendships, I really love Cheryl Strayed's book, Tiny Beautiful Things. It's a compilation of advice. Um, the Dear Sugar series is before she started her pro podcast and they she did the online thing. And, um, and it's a compilation of people's letters and her advice back. And I have recommended it to a lot of clients because I feel like whether it's rejection or loss, um, financial havoc, this, that, she's got a story in there that addresses it. And I found her feedback to be compassionate and a straight shooter at the same time. And I just really love that about that book. It's really beautiful. Yeah, that's that's a great book. There have been a couple of people recommend that book, and because she was an advice columnist, is that right? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. So she's this is like real world. People asked about this, and she gave exactly. that feedback, which is so powerful because we can relate to that. You know, that's like everyday stuff. Not, well, I'm the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It's like great. There's 500 of you. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, <laughs> I find it. it very, very real, very real and poignant. So I, I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, that's a great, great resource. Thank you. Well, I got to say, I mean, 
we could probably go on for days, but we don't have time for that. So <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you, how can our listeners, you know, contact you and find out more about what you do? And, and of course, the book. Oh, yeah, sure. So um, my name, which is not so easy, is Tara Kuzno. So I'm just, well, the link will be there. But tarakuzno.com, you will see um, more about me. My book is there. Um, uh, other, I have a blog, um, uh, Matters in Kind. I have a newsletter of the same name. So you can just find me at tarakuzno.com. My book, The Kindness Cure, can be found on any of the online stores. Um, it's actually in Whole Foods now, which is exciting. The Kindness Cure. So um, check it out. And it's very easy read also, 28 short chapters. Um, my website also has a kindness quotient quiz because that's the science side of me. I like, you know, quizzes are fun to take. So you can take the kindness quotient quiz and see where you net out. Nice. Quizzes <laughs> are always fun. That's fabulous. Thank you. And as, as Tara said, the links to all of this are going to be on her show page on the Speaking of Partnership website. So don't worry if you weren't able to grab a pen and write this down. You'll just go to the website, type in her name, Tara. It'll go straight to her uh, show page and you'll see the links at the bottom of the page. So it'll be really, really easy for you. Well, Tara, thank you so much for sharing these stories, these insights. Absolutely incredible. I, I've learned a ton from our conversation and I know our listeners have too. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Speaking of Partnership. Head over to speakingofpartnership.com for links and recaps of every show and so much more. Be sure you catch the bonus stories from our guests on Follow Your Yes Friday. It's easy to do. Just go to your favorite podcast directory, search for Speaking of Partnership, and click subscribe. Like what you hear? Leave us a rating and review on Stitcher or iTunes. The greatest compliment you can give the show is to refer us to someone else either in person or on the web. Have a great day. And remember, even when you stumble, you're still moving forward. Peace.